0: Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. The headlights on both ends.
1: Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Midwest Ag Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Associate Editor Jennifer Enlatsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Associate Editor Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. So, how was your weekend?
2: It was all right. Yeah?
1: You want to know what mine entailed? Bread 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 and more bread just in case you didn't get the notice i was at the 2019 national festival of breads in manhattan this
2: past weekend i fo- found some mold on the bread for chance's sandwich and let's pick that off and that was about my attachment to bread this weekend so
1: well trust me there was not a speck of mold to be found in any of these delicious breads that were baked oh my goodness kayleen it was, I don't know why Kansas Wheat hasn't called it gl- Palooza, but they really should. Somebody's probably already got that name I somewhere. Know. Oh, folks, the National Festival of Breads happens every other year. It only happens in the odd number years, and they always do it, hopefully, during the middle of wheat harvest. Well, this year we've got harvest pushed back by a month, so the contestants didn't get to take a, a ride in a combine like they had in years past, but... They got to go out to the field the See day before the green contest. Weed. Yes, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun. It's always an interesting thing to watch contestants from all over the United States. They're, they choose eight. Each of these eight contestants have made this bread recipe. It's a yeast bread. They have to use King Arthur flour and Red Star yeast, which are both of the title sponsors of the event. But they come up with some flavor combinations and creativity in the way they shape the breads. And, and these are the best of the best home bakers. Yeah. But what's really cool is some of them have never been out to a farm, Kayleen. And so this year they had a, a, a group of bloggers. They had a blogging category. And so I was talking with one of the, the bloggers at my table out at, at Joe and Gina Kerr's place just outside of Brookville, Kansas and Joe's explaining what a combine does and how it gets wheat from the field and he's got this brand new beautiful John Deere combine parked right outside of of the shed that we're having lunch in, right? Mm-hmm. Now you and I we we're familiar with that equipment, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe not today's equipment. I think the last con- last time I rode in a combine might have been 2001 <laughs> but um well maybe not no I've, I've ridden one since then but ridden in a family one 2001 so I was talking with this blogger and you know the questions that they ask are questions that farm people don't ask other farm people <laughs> how many acres do you run what kind, you know, how much does that equipment cost? <laughs> what's your, what's your cost of inputs? I mean, these are things that other business owners talk about, but farmers don't ever yeah, ask that of other farmers. Questions. It's impolite. But you have to understand in order for city people to understand things, they ask
2: questions. So um, how did, how did he answer these questions?
1: Um, he was very tactful. Uh, there was a John Deere representative there. He says, "Well, that's a question for Yancey." <laughs> and so, um, cast <clears throat> it off. Yeah, and, and to their credit, um, the John Deere rep says, "You know, that piece of equipment out there can run anywhere from three hundred thousand to three hundred fifty thousand dollars just for the combine. The header is sold separately." And the blogger sitting across from me, she goes, "What's the header?" So I explained, "It's the little wheelie thing out front that pulls in the wheat." <laughs> Again, that's, you know, simple terms, simple terms. They don't really need to know exactly how it happens because these are not engineers. These are not farmers <laughs> that are going to go out there and harvest your crop today. These are people just need to know the basics of it. Yeah. I don't need to know how an elevator works. I just need to know when I get in, I push a button, it goes up or down, boom, we're done. <laughs> so anyway, and she goes, well, how much is a header? And I said, mm, um, I don't know, 70000 100000 I I don't know. Not cheap. It's not cheap. (laughs) So she started doing some math in her head, and she goes, that's almost a half a million dollars for one piece of equipment. I said, yeah. And they only use it maybe 30 days out of the year. Maybe. Maybe. You know, if they're running corn and soybeans and Milo, they get more use out of it. But, yeah, you run it a month out of the year, (laughs) and then you put it in the shed. (laughs) Her eyes just got really wide. I said, remember how when you were a kid – your mom always said, "Go for, go for somebody who drives a pretty car, honey." You know, mm-hmm. she goes, "Yeah," and I said, "Our mom has told us to look at the at the farm equipment." <laughs> <laughs> she laughed. Mine never said that. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, mine never did either. Um. So anyway, I um, won't
2: tell you what she said. But.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As Dad used to say, though, Chrome will not get you home. <laughs> So that was interesting. The the wheat tour um, the day bef- they always do that the day before. And that's part of the the experience of, of BreadFest of the National Festival of Breads is to bring these people to the Bread Basket of America Kansas. We are the wheat state. That's pretty much what we're known for, wheat yep. and sunflowers and and occasionally a you know, a kerfuffle or two. Um, <laughs> bring them out here, show them what wheat country's like, and have them become ambassadors for wheat farmers. And so that was, it was a pretty fun time, a tasty time too. Oh my
2: goodness. Did any of them have farm ties or anything like that? They were Um, all removed?
1: This year they were all removed from the farm for the most part, but one of the blogger uh, contestants was actually from Kansas. She had just moved to Chicago, Illinois. So um, she was least familiar with our
2: state and our state's humidity. (laughs) On that side of the state.
1: Oh my gosh, Kaylee and I had forgotten how ungodly humid Manhattan, Kansas can be in the summertime.
2: You do live in the desert though.
1: (laughs) You know, but I think I've I think that's the sign that I am fully a Western Kansas girl now because I was a puddle of sweat when I just took (laughs) when I woke up that morning. Like, what's wrong with you people? So anyway, um, not that y'all need to know that, but welcome to Manhattan. Yeah. Anywho, so uh, this coming weekend's Father's Day weekend. Do you have any big plans made?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> he's entered in the ranch bronc riding at Coldwater Saturday night. So he's been doing a lot of rode riding, hasn't he? <sighs> yes. So what prompted this? His apparently going through his second childhood. I don't know. 40th birthday last year might have sparked something. I don't know.
1: Midlife crisis. Probably. You know, most guys go for a new wife and a pretty car. So if he's just riding horses, let him ride horses.
2: (laughs) Whatever. He does what he wants to do, and so do I. There you go. (laughs) But he's been doing pretty good, right? Yeah, he split second in Cimarron a couple weeks ago. He got bucked off last weekend, but it was it was a bareback horse that they put in the range bronc riding and the bareback horses they don't use halters on them so they didn't want him to put a halter on her so he had to put his bronc rein around her neck and it didn't work well Ah uh-huh. so yeah well okay. we'll see how that goes and well good luck to him the boys and i went to Mead last weekend with him and they're full of questions and it's kind of frustrating to me as their mother to answer all these questions and drives me insane, and the little one just kind of disappears, and you don't know where he's at, so.
1: You remember when we were kids going to fairs and rodeos and stuff, and we'd just find friends? You'd you'd find little friends, (laughs) and you'd run
2: off, and the parents, the adults are like, meh. Yeah. You're okay. My parents were not like that. (laughs) If we went somewhere to a rodeo, per se, and Dad paid for a ticket for us to get in, your butt was in the bleachers, and you watched the entire rodeo. Yeah. That's the way my dad was, and I'm kind of like, eh, if they want to go play, let them go play, mm-hmm. but I need to know where you're at. You know, <laughs> mom and dad always did know,
1: and to their credit, you know, for the most part, we were, we usually stuck around the the bleachers or so, you yeah. know, but when you're little, like five, six or so, you know, you watch it for a little bit, and then you want to go play. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. much what Chance did. Um I remember one year, though. This is why I don't like snakes. My brother and his little buddies decided to um, go. Close your eyes. We got a surprise for you. <laughs> and they'd found a bull snake. Nice. And they draped it around my neck. <laughs> yeah, that was not a good time. I bet not. <laughs> you can scream loud enough that a rodeo clown <laughs> wonders if your head is on fire. <laughs> So, yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Stop the performance. <laughs> uh, and that's why I don't do snakes. Yeah. Well, um, it is uh, June 12th, and uh, we're recording this, and wheat harvest is progressing in Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, sounds like they're doing pretty good. They're, they're getting through some wheat. Uh, weather's not bogging them down too much it looks like it's drying up in places and so you know guys are still trying to get you know corn and soybeans and they're still going for soybeans yeah um, some of them are looking at the date for their corn and they've decided you know what we'll just go ahead and put put it in the ground and roll the
2: dice and see if yep. we get a crop keep your fingers crossed
1: yep yep Oh uh, President Trump was just in uh, the Midwest yesterday and uh, we have a a new executive order that is pretty much paving the way for simplifying the approval process for biotechnology. So that's a new thing. Yeah, Um, that's good. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of rigmarole that goes around um, approving a biotech seed or a biotech event. There's three different federal agencies that have to be involved in this approval process, USDA, EPA, FDA, and Each step of this approval process adds millions of dollars to the final thing. So it adds costs to something that is supposed to help at the end. And so, you know, this this executive order just makes sure that we're using science to approve things and not gut.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They were talking about this back in February at Commodity Classic. There was a lot Mm -hmm. of chit-chat about it, and it's nice to hear that they worked through something.
1: Um, He did it by executive order, so, of course, that can always get overturned. It's not as permanent as if we had Congress running it through and having um, something signed into law. So here's hoping that maybe that can be down the road. We still work towards that. But at the very least, we have something in place that we can start making some real change and and helping farmers and helping consumers. Mm -hmm. Although, did you see the latest on – the environmental working groups added again. You know, there's still, there's still uh, traces of glyphosate on your breakfast cereal. Well, in order to have any sort of conceivable harm from any of these traces, you'd have to eat your your human body weight in cereal once an hour for six hours of every day, in order to have any problems. Yeah, and yet, it's a big deal. You know what? Honestly, that <laughs> press release, the headline on that press release is enough to scare any news producer to putting it on the air. Mm-hmm. That's why you're going to see stories like that. It's because the press release was too juicy not to run. Of course it was. And it's, it's designed to scare you. Um, if you understand science, you understand glyphosate works on plant cells, not he- animal cells. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, people are what they are, and they're going to think what they're going to think. We just ask that you look at the science of it. And this is coming from two writers that did not do very well in science class, but we know the people that did very well in science class.
2: <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> oh, did you do pretty good in science? Yeah, I did all right in science. Ooh, brag on you. <laughs> <laughs> I like science
1: i just couldn't ever um remember stuff the memorization was was the thing that always tripped me up yeah yeah anywho so really if you've got a, a thought about some of today's events um we'd love to hear from you right kayleen
2: yeah if you want to drop us a line at hbj at hbj.com and let us know how wheat harvest is going in your area or if you're still trying to plant soybeans
1: And uh, this week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the June 10th print edition. We're going to have part two of our conversation with Dr. Nancy and Dr. Jerry Jacks, the real-life husband and wife veterinarian team that are featured in the National Geographic series, The Hot Zone. Kayleen, wasn't that the most fun interview?
2: Yeah, they were pretty interesting. Veterinarians are always... It's either they're really, really smart and completely over your head, or mm-hmm. they're very conversational and explain stuff in in a way that people like me can understand.
1: I just really appreciate um, all of the work that they've that they've done over the course of their careers to keep yeah. us safe. Yeah, I remember Jerry had spoke to my Carl class uh, many years ago when I was in the Kansas Ag and Rural Leadership Program, and the stories that he is able to tell about working on biosecurity and and um, working on teams that are, are making sure that we are safe from bio warfare, mm-hmm. those stories are enough to make you want to wash your hands a lot.
2: <laughs> wear a rubber suit. <laughs> I don't want to wear a
1: rubber suit. Those are those. Those seem to, Those look like they might be a little hot. <laughs> a little sticky. A little sticky. <laughs> and if I don't like Manhattan in June, I don't imagine I'd like a rubber suit anytime. <laughs>
2: wouldn't survive
1: <laughs> <laughs> no but um in all seriousness uh, the things that they've that they've been a part of and the the work that they've done I'm in awe you know the, some of the stuff that they've worked with you know Nancy was talking about it's all routine unless there is a non-routine event
2: <laughs> yeah she just was like no emotion in her voice just it's a non-routine Spit event. It out. <laughs> and i'm thinking ma'am
1: <laughs> you are messing with something that one drop of it can make your eyeballs bleed <laughs> but okay <laughs> not not worried at all it's just what it is um and, and and that's what's fun about our job that's the best part about our job honestly is talking to people that are incredibly talented that are incredibly knowledgeable and that are out there working every day to make sure that the food that we produce here in the United States is safe, wholesome, and nutritious for you guys. And safe is key, right? Yes, it is. So we're going to have part two of that interview with um, the JAXs, and we're going to talk about um, Hollywood and their work with USAMRED and what animal health issues farmers and ranchers need to monitor today. And of course, Kayleen's going to bring us the latest on grain markets, and we'll have those final thoughts. So, put it in gear if you're in that field. Make those rounds, guys. And thanks for choosing to ride with us on HPJ Talk. week's cover story, Unconventional As They Come, is from Kayleen. She focuses on the need for diversity in the agricultural sector and talks with Janine Abrams, an African-American crop breeder who specializes in soybean and vegetable crops. She also spoke with Yari Nagy, Director of Operations at Agritecture, a firm that helps create structures for
2: urban farming. Inside, on page 1 and 2B, contributor Lacey Newland attended the Oklahoma Wheat Commission's All You Need to Know Artisan and Grain Workshop in Stillwater, May 15th, where millennial consumers were the hot topic of the day. On page 8 and
1: 9B, we have updates from our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews from the road. And we're going to have some updates from them later on in the show. Be sure to keep up with our crews online at allaboardharvest.com which is brought to you by
2: John Deere and High Plains Journal. On our opinions and editorial page, 4B, Jenny had the editorial spot this week. Ripples in the system, comparing one action in tariffs and how that may add up to further problems to skipping a stone in a stream. Seymour clearly writes about the passing of Mississippi Senator Thad Cochran and Jim Carroll, U.S. drug czar, writes to share what the White House is doing to tackle the drug epidemic.
1: Remember, if you have a response to something you've read or heard, or there's a local topic that you want to bring to the attention of our readers and listeners, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk@hpj.com, at hpj.com. Or you can always call us at 1-800-452-7171. We want to hear from you.
3: It's time for an all wheat harvest update, brought to you by High Plains Journal, John Deere on Verberth Manufacturing and Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children. A chance to catch up today with Laura Hafner with High Plains Harvesting. Laura, give us a little update. Uh, Where are you at and and what have you seen so far with the harvest tour for for High Plains Harvesting?
4: Hey, Dwayne. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, we're out here between Wichita Falls and Vernon, and we are right in the middle of wheat harvest, and we're really thankful to be in the field because, as in many places, We've been fighting the moisture and the rain, and um, but we're still seeing some good yields despite the weather. We're probably averaging around 30 to 45 bushels an acre. Uh, test weights are coming in anywhere in that 58 to 61 range, proteins 10 to 11. So we're pretty pleased with those results. We've been a little bit worried about the ground holding up with all the moisture out there, but so far, again, we've been pleasantly surprised. I might have just jinxed myself by saying that, but things have been holding up pretty good out in the field.
3: Well, it uh, seems like it's a continuing battle year in and year out uh, that some of the crews like yours that, uh, that get to Texas to start their harvest tour, uh, they start battling mud uh, and, uh, and then tend to get behind schedule, it seems like. But uh, I don't, the whole wheat harvest behind schedule in a lot of ways uh, for folks that uh, are, are a week to two weeks behind when they normally would be cutting.
4: You're right, and, and those conditions right there, I think, are, are saving us up the road. Right, so far, we're we're staying on schedule pretty well.
3: As far as uh, conditions, you would referenced uh, moisture. Uh, did they have pretty decent uh, moisture throughout the year? And you referenced uh, kind of the bushels that they were getting. Is that pretty average for that area southwest of Vernon?
4: Yeah, I think they're I think they're pretty pleased with those uh, those averages.
3: You referenced uh, protein. Uh, that sounds like a uh, pretty high-quality wheat. Uh, uh, maybe a little soft on the test weight in, in some places with the additional rainfall, but but protein looks pretty good.
4: Yeah, it, re- it really does. They're going to be pleased with that.
3: Looking forward, Laura, uh, where's High Plains Harvesting head uh, after they finish up there in northern Texas?
4: Yeah, we'll be heading up the road uh, a couple hours, kind of that central Oklahoma area, and then soon after that I'm sure – South Central Kansas will be calling before too long, so we have we have to keep at it to make sure we're hitting our next stops on time.
3: Our thanks to Laura Hafner with High Plains Harvesting, joining us with an all aboard wheat harvest update on KFRM. Tracy Zorian, Zorian Harvesting, and Tracy, it's uh, that hurry up and wait uh, kind of situation once again for you guys in particular. Uh, the last couple of years have been. Well, they haven't been typical and, and certainly been tough uh, for custom harvesting, and it sounds like uh, you're still sitting at home uh, in Nebraska with uh, with things packed up but but waiting to head to that first job.
5: Yeah, we're still waiting for that very first job, and, and it's very tough on my end to be sitting here and seeing some of the harvesters making their way south and in the field. And, you know, it's like um, maybe – christmas eve you're waiting for for things to happen and gifts to arrive and it just isn't happening fast enough but yeah we're we're still waiting duane it's
3: been an interesting year we had uh, some areas had a really wet fall and uh, and couldn't get wheat in uh, in a timely manner like they would have liked to have gotten Uh, a number of other issues though that have impacted wheat acres which directly impacts the the custom harvesting industry with uh, the number of fall crops particularly sorghum and cotton uh, that have taken a bigger bite out of some of those areas that were predominantly wheat
5: uh, yep that's absolutely correct and then you got to throw in the weather too and with our situation dwayne you know we it just seems like the very first stop that we've tried to get started has been an inconsistent for several years now and and it I think it has a lot to do with what you just said the the cotton acres, the the milo acres that are replacing the wheat acres, but then you've also got drought that takes away acres for farmers, and and you know they've got to find something that's going to help them be profitable. So they look to something else, and and the custom harvester definitely depends on those wheat acres. Now I know that maybe not every one of the harvesters are situation like us, but it just seems like that that first. Stop down in Texas, Oklahoma has been a tough one for us to to get regenerated and start started again. So, our first stop this year will be the same one that we got started last year after the major situation with drought and um, the high grazing was in. Ch- we'll be in Chase, Kansas as our first stop. So we're we're still waiting, anticipating on getting equipment headed with our first trip by the end of this week. So at least we'll get some wheels on the ground
3: rolling seems like uh, this year in particular uh, the wheat uh, in terms of maturity for a number of different reasons whether it was uh, the planning date or the weather that we've had that uh, a week to two weeks behind schedule in a lot of places that uh, making it difficult uh, to try and make plans uh, your situation may be a little bit unique in that uh, that you and your husband are the crew so that uh, you're not waiting on folks or or trying to find uh, work for somebody that you've brought in
5: Yep, that's another uh, ver- uh, variable that I I guess is exactly right. With it just being my husband and I, we don't have the need to really push maybe as hard as some of the others who are trying to pay employees and you know have that more equipment and insurance and expenses to get paid for at this time of the year. So, and plus us being just the two of us and maybe getting a little bit older, we are not we're just not pushing as hard, but we are doing the best we can, and, and we'll continue to do it as long as we
3: can. Our thanks to Tracy Zirian with Zirian Harvesting. Joining us with an all-aboard wheat harvest update brought to you by High Plains Journal, John Deere, Earth Manufacturing, and Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children. For KFRM, I'm Dwayne Thames. Have a great day.
1: cable TV may have caught the National Geographic limited series The Hot Zone this month. The movie stars Juliana Margulies as Colonel Nancy Jacks, an Army veterinary pathologist who played a key role in a 1989 situation at a lab facility in Reston, Virginia. Monkeys at a nearby facility had tested positive for Ebola, and the situation inspired the 1994 book The Hot Zone, which was optioned for a movie.
2: Jackson, and her husband, Colonel Jerry Jax, both worked in the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps and were trained at Kansas State University. In our second part of our interview, we talked with them about their work on infectious diseases, what concerns them today from in- influenza to African swine fever and beyond, and even how farmers and ranchers today need to be vigilant to protect their herds from outbreaks.
1: So there's a lot of livestock diseases, like you mentioned, that are out there, that could devastate our industry and our economy you know big on the topic of of our forefront of our minds is african swine fever in china and you know we've seen fmd and BSE. i remember the cow that stole christmas in in 2003 um so so as somebody as as two folks that understand the lab environment and the real world environment What keeps you up at night, even though you're retired, what keeps you up at night as far as what's on the horizon? And what are some ways that we can protect ourselves?
0: Well, I think that the thing that keeps me up at night probably is, uh, well, nothing keeps me up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think one of the ones that's very worrisome that doesn't have anything to do with agriculture is smallpox, because I think smallpox is a real ultimate threat, and I won't specifically talk about that. Yeah, I guess one of the things I would say is that the last couple of years I was in the service, I got to do I got to work in biological arms control and you know, keep in mind that where we worked, we were primarily trying to find ways to counter uh, potential warfare agents. And so I got a lot of chance to be ex- exposed no pun intended to information about biowarfare. And so I have a real uh, I have a real interest in that. So smallpox, I think, is one that uh, that, that bothers me. You know, I think I think regular old flu is a really uh, uh, is a really good one we should be concerned about. And of course, that has a very significant agricultural component with swine and and uh, and birds. With with the collection of uh, the, the huge incubator that they had in China, the way they uh, raise swine and inter- intermingle pou- poultry, I think that's a real threat. You know, if, if you do a little research into the great influenza of 1918 and 1919, uh, just how horrible that was. And, you know, we really, if we were to get a really significant pandemic strain, uh, we could have perhaps not a repeat of just how bad that was where it killed between, you know, 35 or 40 to 100 million people when the world was a lot smaller. So. Swine uh, swine flu is uh, or, or I mean, uh, influenza is a huge uh, is a huge issue.
6: For one thing, vector borne diseases. There was yes. a period where we thought we had eliminated vector borne diseases, and then because of environmental issues and uh, a lot of political pressure, we essentially quit being so vigilant about mosquitoes and ticks. And I would say right now we're seeing one of the greatest resurgence in vector borne diseases as well as new diseases. Uh, It's easy for vectors to hitch a ride. I can remember when, uh, it was actually right after I got out of the military, came to Kansas and everybody said, oh, West Nile won't be here for five or six years. Well, it wouldn't get here before, before, but it hitched a ride on the truck and and got here from the East Coast in less than four months. And swept completely Uh, across the country. And and it just swept completely across the country. And people just were not paying attention to mosquitoes, mosquito breeding areas, and and cleaning up water, and and it's a a really tough problem. Zika virus now has been a real huge issue. A lot of the hemorrhagic fever viruses are carried by either rodents or vectors. Yeah, Uh, one
0: uh, particular uh, agricultural significance, too, would be Rift Valley Fever, and that would have a tremendous effect on both the on, on both the human population and uh, the agricultural population you know and one of the things that's happened since the hot zone and, and really I think you can attribute some of the uh, uh, some of the progress that's been made to the hot zone because of uh, uh, how much attention it got back in the 90s you know the NBAP, which has been uh, uh, you know which is under construction in Manhattan right now, that's a huge plus for. Uh, people within the agricultural community because that facility is dedicated strictly to research for, uh, uh, against pathogens that are, that are agricultural pathogens and would affect the agricultural landscape. So that's a tremendous plus for us in, uh, uh, here and here in the state of Kansas. And that facility, regardless of where it would be, would be a tremendous benefit to uh, people that are uh, in the agricultural industries.
1: So, speaking of, of viruses and that sort of thing, you know, again, the hot topic in the news is the anti-vaxxers and the vaccine debate, and, you know, we're seeing resurgences of measles and and things that I, I got my vaccine before I went to kindergarten. That was just, you know, you, you have the tears and you go to <laughs> kindergarten and you learn your ABCs. That's just how it was. So... <laughs> Do we see that non-vaccination rates playing a role in the rise of some of these diseases, and and how do we get that message out?
0: Absolutely, I you know
6: well, we're in danger of losing our measles-free status, which we have maintained forever, and it's ridiculous. We have a very very effective vaccine. Uh, the same for polio. I mean, when I was a kid, and I still remember doing it. You lined up and. They lined everybody up and you took your, little. first it was a shot and then it was your sugar cube. And, uh, you know, I can understand the issue. It's a lot of vaccines. I think to me, a lot of people are more concerned about the number of vaccines that their kids get in a narrow window of time. But I, I just think it's ridiculous not to vaccinate your children for diseases that are a real problem. Essentially, you're riding off the backs of the population that does vaccinate. And, yeah, and I think
0: that's a, that, that's a good point. The veterinarians, they teach us about herd health. And so if you vaccinate a certain percentage of the population uh, that you have, it increases the the higher the percentage of the vaccinations that you give to a population, the higher their uh, their protection is. And so the people that are not vaccinating are riding off the back of the rest of the population who do get their uh, vaccinations like they should. And we just don't not, you know, we, we don't understand how you can ethically say, well, I'm not going to vaccinate my child, because I think there's some wild percentage of uh, of risk associated with this vaccine that I read on the internet.
3: Mm-hmm. that somebody okay.
0: told me, is, uh, uh, you know, that puts my child at risk. So we are, uh, you know, we're aghast at that whole uh, measles situation.
6: Now that being said, there are clearly populations that cannot be immunized because they have an immunosuppressive disorder and, and it might be dangerous, but that does not apply to the bulk of kids that are not getting vaccinated.
1: I, I tell you what, if if this wasn't a phone call, I would hug you two right now.
2: <laughs>
6: right,
1: Kayleen? Yeah.
2: <laughs> she wants to hug me and I'm not gonna let her.
1: <laughs> no, but that's a very important thing. I can't tell you how many smart people I know that have gone to the Google School of Medicine. And yep. and that's that's not a good that's not a, a good place to go to the school of medicine if <laughs> if I may be so bold as to say. <laughs>
6: Yeah, and interestingly, they found out, and, and it was in the Army, they had a large number of crew, recruits that were in a crowded area, you're physically stressed. They broke with measles. They found out that that measles shot doesn't give you lifelong immunity like you have when you've had the disease. So it's actually important when you get older. I, I talked to five, maybe six women, all of came up to me afterwards and said they're getting their antibody checked to see if they needed to be boosted for measles. And uh, I, two of those women had, had told me that they had to be vaccinated; their antibody titer wasn't high enough. So it's a disease that can uh, come back and bite you when you're older if you didn't have a natural exposure.
2: Hmm. So that's yeah. good to know. Exactly. Chickenpox. Yeah,
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. We're talking about the, talk the chickenpox vaccine. Well, that's not a lifelong immunity. Yeah. So we're.
0: So we're not big anti-vaxxers because uh, one of the real benefits of working at USAMRD was that you got immunized for all of these different uh, diseases that did have vaccines. Some of the stuff that we worked with, for instance, Ebola, did not have a vaccine, and that's why they were characterized as uh biosafety level 4 agents. Uh, but we got about... 50 vaccinations uh, while we worked at U So we have been down the back. It's not our first rodeo as far as vaccinations.
1: <laughs> you know, when I um, I've been overseas with a couple of groups, and I always make sure and check the the reports of what vaccines do I have to get. And I remember going into one of my, uh, one of my doctors, and I said, "Well, I'm going to need the yellow fever shot." And he goes, "Where are you going?
2: <laughs>
6: Vietnam." Actually, Very good recommendation.
2: Exactly. We've got
6: you. We've had them all.
2: Yep, we got them (laughs) all. Well, we kind of talked about vaccines and being vigilant about inoculating the herd, so to say. Um,
6: Well, I I will tell you, the military, uh, it's not an option. It's not a democratic organization. (laughs) You just line up and get them. Exactly, <laughs> we used to, yeah, I'm pretty glad that that's the way it works, yes, so.
1: so we used to have an edit an editor here at the office who was a Vietnam vet, and we would get our flu shots every year, and he'd just stoically stand there and just be like, yep, yep that's that's how it's going and my first couple of years working here i didn't like i-, I still' am not a big fan of needles, but back then when I was younger, I wasn't quite as stoic as I am today. <laughs> And he used to tell me, you'd never do good in the Army, kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking kind of about keeping humans safe. What can farmers and ranchers do to be more vigilant on their farms and ranches? I mean, do they need to implement safety protocols, you know, that sort of thing?
6: I think with beef it's maybe a little bit different, but uh, I know certainly with swine barns, they maintain a very high, biosafety profile mm-hmm. because they know that's what protects them. They don't let strangers come in with you know fresh change of clothes. You don't wear dirty boots. You don't go from farm to farm. Uh, and I, I think they've gotten a lot more vigilant about that. Beef is a little bit different because a lot of them are still pasture raised, but uh, it's still an issue. And, and and I would you know veterinarians have learned that you change you change clothes between farms. You disinfect your boots. You do so in a sense, I think a lot of farmers, because it's an economic
2: issue, are protecting and doing the right
0: thing. Yes, I believe uh, so. I, th- I think it's important that they listen to their uh, extension agents because they, uh, I, I know they make a real effort to keep up with the state of the art, so to speak, from, uh, uh, you know, their interactions with the, the folks at K-State and elsewhere who... Uh, you know, are making the recommendations as far as what they do. So uh, I think that's a very, very important thing for farmers to keep
1: up with. You know, we co- we go out to a lot of farm visits, right, Healing, And and I always make sure that I have some sort of change of boots in the truck with me because I don't want to I don't want to be the person, the reason why I carried FMD from one dairy to another. You know, mm-hmm. yeah.
6: Dairy has an interesting story, but I believe the last FMD in this continent within Canada, then they just throw the end of one of those little pieces of sausage in a feed bunk. Yeah. And I mean, it's crazy contagious. Yeah. Uh, measles is crazy contagious because it lasts for a long time. Yeah. And it's airborne. And if you really look at what makes some of these diseases so dangerous, it's the fact that they are airborne, which Ebola is not, it's, it's transmitted by infection. And it responds very well to disinfectants. That's not the case with some of these viruses. They're mm-hmm. a lot harder. So
1: considering that we have, you know, we've got a lot of feedlots out this area. We've got a lot of large dairies um, that are coming in from the coast because we have more more ground for them to spread out, and we have a little bit more of a better environment for them um, to expand. And those those facilities have a lot of folks from a lot of different countries working there is that something that employers of those places should be like you know guys let's offer some vaccines for our employees let's try to get you covered for measles in case you didn't get covered when you were a kid is that is that something that they should consider
0: you know that's probably a little out of our lane yeah (laughs) recommendations about that
6: (laughs) human treatment that's really
0: yeah I, I don't know. You know, we might have some ideas about that, but uh, it's, We're you not know. qualified. Yeah, we're not really qualified to talk
6: about that. <laughs> it's real like nice when you talk in the movie, it, you know, the CDC comes in, they took care of the human exposure. Gotcha. To the animals. And that, it's very clear. I think that's the thing that maybe wasn't so clear in the movie, but uh, in the Army especially, everything is a team-driven thing, and there isn't any jockeying around because we all know what everybody's brain is. Uh, and it makes it so that you can put together an effective response. And clearly veterinarians are lane is not to treat human patients. Gotcha. Uh,
1: okay. Okay, so we really do rely on veterinarians like yourselves um to be the first wave of response and and especially in, in animal disease outbreaks, so question do we have enough trained veterinarians in the United States could we use more are there skills gaps that we need to fill um, when we're when we're considering our kids are considering going to college
6: I think there are uh, certainly the AVMA has done a lot of studies on this one of the issues in our specialty right now is financially you have to look when you get an education how you're going to recoup that investment and, and it's uh, expensive to go to school and some of these kids come out of school with crazy debt. I think the other one is a portion of how, and, and they're really trying to address that by offering these uh, paybacks where you work in small, small communities, ag-based communities. I think that the, the need is largely there where most, the bulk of them I think does to the generally small animal practice.
0: Yeah, and, and I think here, you know, it's, I think the gender inequity that you see in veterinary school right now is uh, probably plays a role in that because many of the classes in veterinary school are, you know, north of uh, three quarters or 80 percent women, and women just aren't as likely to want to come to, you know, Western Kansas or. Uh, you know agricultural communities to, do, to do large animal work no some are so but, but, but
6: yeah but
0: the yeah so i so i think that is a factor in you know in large animal practitioners right now it's hard to say whether we need more veterinarians or not because they uh, you know they have to go someplace to you know to make a difference mm-hmm.
6: i think the other thing is corporate farming has become so commonplace these small farms uh have been bought up, and large corporate entities uh manage a lot of the agricultural efforts, and they tend to have their own veterinarians that they fly around, you know they provide their own veterinary care so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: well, um, one last question uh looking back over both of your careers, is there anything that stands out in your mind as being something? You know, you look back and think, wow, I I did that. What what moments are those for you guys?
0: You know, I think that uh, when we got married in veterinary school, uh, you know, as Nancy explained, there weren't very many women. And so, you know, I was lucky to find one who'd uh, who'd take me, and we went into the
4: service
0: (laughs) during the Vietnam War when it wasn't very popular to, uh, you know, to be in the Army. And uh, we just... Uh, saw opportunities as they were presented to us. We never really intended to stay in the service, uh, but we were a team through the whole thing. Uh, We became the first couple to both be promoted to full colonel in the Army, which is, it's not easy for one person to do, much less uh, two of us and raise a family. And, uh, you know, we really liked being in the Army. It was really, really good to us. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of luck succeeding in the, uh, in the service and in public practice. Uh, we really liked it, and we got a lot of opportunities when we came back to K State too. I worked almost I worked 17 or 18 years there after we got out of the service, and worked for great uh, you know worked for great people in the senior administration at K State, and uh, and so I think you know we got a chance to make a real contribution here in the state of Kansas, also, which was. Uh, uh, also very gratifying so you know we're content it, it worked out great for us and getting a degree in veterinary medicine for us was a uh, you know, it was a win-win and,
6: and I think I would second that one and we talked to a lot of people we talked to a lot of veterinary classes and, and we always tell people don't close the door you may not realize how many opportunities are available you may think you know what you want to do but that can change radically I mean, if somebody had asked me if I would have thought I would have been a pathologist in high-hazard disease research, I would have never even imagined that. Uh, The past just kind of led us that way because doors kept opening up, and we found it interesting and challenging.
1: Well, that's just really, really, like I said, if I wasn't already an ag journalist, Kayleen, I think I'd want to be a vet right now. (laughs) The science and math might be a hurdle to get over, however. (laughs) Well, thank you, Doctors Jacks, um, Colonels Jacks. Uh, Thank you so very much for uh, joining us on HPJ Talk. And we're going to encourage our listeners to go. And it's streaming now. The Hot Zone is streaming. And uh, go check it out. It's on Nat Geo. Thank you so very much. We do appreciate you coming on.
6: I You're
2: welcome. It. Thank you. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Egg Resources on June 4th. Corn was up at $4.05. Wheat was up at $4.29. Milo was up at $3.55. And soybeans were up at $7.42. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ direct email newsletters at our website, hpj.com signup. Simply select the topics that interest you and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email.
1: Next week's print issue of High Plains Midwest Ag Journal is our water issue. Be sure to watch for that in your mailboxes June 17th. And look for additional content online anytime at
2: www.hpj.com. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJTalk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk.com. At hbj.com.
1: Thanks again for riding along with us, folks, as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman Wyatt Earp once said, "Fast is fine, but accuracy is everything." We'll see you on the trail.
2: This has been a production of High Plains Journal. All rights reserved. Dirt road in a gooseneck
0: saddle love with me land in God's country crops far as I can see. The headlights on both ends of my day This country